There we go. Smash hit number seven in the UK single chart in 1982, Mama Used to Say, by, of course, Junior. And live on the line, I've got the man himself. Junior, welcome to Radio Newark. Thank you very much for having me. How are you? I'm marvellous, thank you. Tell me about Mama Used to Say. That really launched you into the charts, didn't it? It launched your career? Yes, that was the, uh, the catalyst for everything else that went on afterwards. It was such a big record in, in America and in Europe. So during those first, I would say, first three years, all I did was tour around and promote and go to different countries in the world. And it was incredible. It was just a lovely period for me yeah. in terms of learning what I was in. It was fantastic. And I think it was, am I right in saying it was a hit in America before? It was a hit in the UK. That's a tough market yeah. to crank. Well, it had come out in the UK, um, I think it was July. No, it was. It was July 27th. It was, that's my sister's birthday. So. <laughs> came out on my sister's birthday in 1981 and it did nothing and um i went out and went on tour with links and became oh, a yeah. part of links yeah david grant and sketch martin that's right you some backing and, uh, yeah and um we went out on tour together and then when i came back well when we were going around the country on the tour i was getting calls from the record company that it was beginning to break in america and buy the April of that year, it had gone from virtually nowhere to number two in the charts. And that was just amazing. And, and number one on, on Billboard chart. Fantastic. Was as well. so also earned you a Grammy, what, didn't it? Best newcomer. Yeah, they got that as well from Mr. James Brown, which was fantastic. How cool was that, meeting James Brown? Oh, mate. I mean, like, you can you imagine? I mean, my, I had a sister who passed, sadly. And she used to send us records from America. And one of the first records that I ever heard was a James Brown record called Money Won't Change It. Right. It was on the King label. Yeah. I think I've still got the 45 upstairs. Yeah, well, that was his label, but, wasn't it? Right. And um, I was like, wow. To be able to then, after getting that as a little kid, you know, back in the 60s, to 20 years on, here I am being given that award by him. That was a, just amazing. Fantastic. Because you, you grew up in Wandsworth in London, and uh, yes. your, your early influences then, James Brown's got to be among them. Well, early influences was, to be honest, was more um, reggae music oh, right. and jazz because of the kind of music that was being played in the house through my um, my mum and my dad and my brothers and my sisters. Uh -huh. And then we'd listen to pop radio, which would be Radio 1 yeah. or... It would be some of the pirate radio stations that were around at the time, and mm -hmm. they were playing a lot more hipper stuff, like the American things, like, you know, the old Motown thing was becoming big, and Stax was becoming big. Yeah. And, you know, you'd go to somebody's house to get your hair cut, and they'd tune in somewhere right down the bottom of the dial, and <laughs> all of a sudden you're hearing the Manhattans, and, and you know, all of the dramatics. And, you know, it was just, for me, musically, it was a wild time because there wasn't any one music form that I was being stuck into. I was I was being able to hear so much. Yeah, get a wide and education, yeah. Yeah. It was brilliant for me at that time as a kid growing up because of that wide range of music that you could hear and, and the, the different styles that were going out there, the way that stylistics did their thing, to the way the dramatics did their things to the way that Aretha did hers to Dionne Warwick. It was, it was just an amazing, for me personally, it was an amazing well, musical time of growth for me. It certainly ignited a spark, because you formed your own local band, didn't you, at the age of 14? Yeah, I did. We uh, called ourselves the Idelics. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's all right. It was like, you know, everybody was some kind of ick at the yes. end. Yes, of so course. So we decided, right, we're going to go with the italics. And we, we used to go out and do pub gigs and there would be a pianist there and we'd do Stevie Wonder songs and things like that, songs of the day. It was good fun and, and it also kept us out of trouble at that time because you'd be 14, 15 and in exactly the same way as today's young people have to see certain things in a particular way. We had the same problems and the same trials yeah. at that time. So doing the band was really good for all of us. Yeah, I mean, you came to the attention of a record label, didn't you? US label called Firesign Records and uh, put out two great tracks that you co-wrote. The A-side was called Get Up and Dance. Let's give it a spin. Uh, on an American label then tell me how that came about well it was one of those things I got a phone call from a friend of mine called Junior Douglas and he said he was making this album and he wanted to get together you know for me to do some writing and it would give me the chance to go in the studio and see how things worked properly. So I was at home and he sent me the backing track and I listened to the backing track and I couldn't think of anything for the backing track. And my niece and nephew were in the house and they kept running up and down and, and every time the chorus part of the song came, they kept saying, everybody get up and dance. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of liked that. And, I thought, and it worked. So yeah. I used that. And um, Hot Up and Heated was one of those songs where um, we had gone in the studio, well, basically we just put the song down and um, it went to a company in America called Firesign. All right. Picked it up. That was my first excursion to America. Yeah. It been around about 1980. Um, I went there and I did a gig in Baltimore, but what was happening with the record was beginning to break. Yeah. Well, I think it went to number one in their breakers charts in America, where it goes from that to going into the full chart. So I had an option at that period of time of whether or not to stay with Firesign or to sign with um, Polygram, which eventually I signed with Polygram yeah. to come back to England. But, <laughs> but um, Hot Up and Heated became very big in France, went to number one in France. Well, I mean, and the 12, it was a great double sided, wasn't it? Get Up and Dance and Hot Up and Heated. You couldn't you couldn't lose. It was a great track. Well, two great tracks. Thank you very much, man. Not many people see, know those two tracks as much as, you know, when I go out and I, I do gigs in France, I do gigs in America, or wherever I'm gigging, I can always do those in the repertoire. And that's interesting, too, because it means that, like, there are so much different parts of your music that people enjoy. Yeah, definitely. Different places, definitely. which is brilliant. Absolutely. Let's have a listen to the flip side, shall we? This is Hot Up and Heated. Um, so, Polygram Records then. I mean, this was the album Jai. Yep. Um, Jai album, we had Too Late on there, I Can't Help It, um, Darling Eye. We made the album in, what was it, we had three weeks. Wow. Mother had blown up so big that everybody was crying for an album. Yeah. Uh, we were on the road. I was on the road with um, Lynx at the time. Uh-huh. We were doing the Christmas um, shows around the country. And the tour kept on growing bigger and bigger. So I'd written these songs and Bob and I, who produced it with me, Bob Carter, Mm -hmm. we decided to go with the band, the Lynx band. After every gig, we would rehearse the songs for the album. 
So when we got back from the tour, right. and we recorded the album within three weeks. That was everything, vocals, overdub. But because of doing it on the road, yeah. it was really simple because it's all live in those days. All right. So it was, you know, it wasn't any um, computers that were used during that period on in making music for us. And uh, it was a matter of having a band who were tight. Yeah. And we could go in as a unit and sit down and do it like they did in the, the old days, which was my days. Wow, so there were just there were, there were live takes. <laughs> live takes. Wow. It was brilliant. <laughs> Again, one of those experiences, you tell somebody you made that first album in three weeks, and it's like, what? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, we did. Excellent. And what a great album it was as well, uh, with tracks like this. This is Too Late. And um, that sort of projected you onto one of the iconic TV shows, Soul Train. Yes. Wow. Uh, yes, that was... Dick um, Griffey and um, Don Cornelius. They're just correct. legends in the music business. Yes, yeah, they were huge in... in uh, that whole show was huge in America. And also, they, they started the um, Solar Record. Yes, yeah. We all remember all of that, you know, with the Whisperers. Yeah, and Shalimar. Uh, Shalimar. Yeah. Or, you know, all these bands. Lakeside. Brilliant. I, I was on the show with New Edition and Guy, and um, I always remember standing at the side, and New Edition had just come with the new album, Boys to Men. Right. And they were doing the first single, and they were so polished, it was untrue. The audience was great. Don really, really took to me, so um, that really helped me as well and calmed me down, because you can imagine you, you're, you're so nervous. It's the first time you've heard about Soul Train, yeah. and you're going to appear on Soul Train. It, it, I mean, that, that just to be asked, that's such a badge of honour, isn't it? That's a recognition of achievement, just to get on the, on the uh, show. Just really. to be on the show and, and to, Absolutely. to know that you're the first, right, to, to have achieved that on that show, for me, was just, it was taking me into different places. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. get my head around it, you know? Great. And uh, a, second yeah. album, a second album followed swiftly after, didn't it? Uh, Inside Looking Out? Yes, it did. And one track on that LP in particular gave you uh, a lot of success, especially in America. This is Communication Breakdown. Lovely track, and you'd never guess it was rushed. The whole album put down in three weeks. Fantastic. I mean, the pressure was on, wasn't it? That was a lot to do with the fact of um, the popularity of what we were doing through Mama and uh, the first album. So we put the second album out, and I think it was Tell Me was the first single from that. Mm -hmm. But we had some really nice success with running from that oh, album. For me, Communication and, um, Breakdown's a great track. Thank you. You know, Communication Breakdown. And, and it was just, I think it was the album where you're, you're beginning to, um, which it was, I was inside looking out i wanted to be out but i had to be inside this little box it would seem at the time and i wasn't really getting to feel the people that made it possible in the first place does that make sense to you what were you sort of musically being stifled do you think by the label and you wanted to um... well, in, a sense, in a sense you're 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 being you're being closed in you you're not really out there in the way that you were Right. Right, to be able to access the people who mattered to you, uh -huh. to be able to make the music that, you know, it's like saying, if you and I are friends and all the time I'm away, 
I'm going to miss a lot of stuff. Yeah. Right? And if we're not talking every now and again, I'm going to miss a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm in one world and you're in another. And if I'm trying to make music for your world, which is my world, then I have to be a part of it. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. You know, and that's, I felt at that particular time, because of not being able to um, sit still within my own environment, I was getting so much from everything else that it clouded the vision of where I was coming from. Mm -hmm, right. You know, so I, you know, I enjoyed that second album, but I didn't enjoy it in the way that I should have. Mm, because of you know not really connecting just uh, i mean there must be uh, an awful like a fairly rigid framework that the um, because by that time the the accountants were controlling the music industry or still are controlling the music <laughs> industry and saying we need these sales and this is the style of music you will write um so yeah i can you see get exactly to what that point where it's it's um we need a song like this and you're like, well, I'm not like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's yeah. not me. This is me. And if that's not what you want, then you shouldn't have signed it in the first place. Mm. Mm. So that was going on. So you, you, the accountants were involved, the lawyers were involved. Yeah. Right. And you lose your impetus for what you wanted, mm. what you really set out to do. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. Um, you spent a lot of time travelling around the uh, the US touring, and you met Arif Mardin? Yes, I did. Well, what can you say about Arif? I mean, we could go on, you know, from Aretha Franklin to his work at, at Atlantic Records and, and the kind of musical stars to coming up with the whole thing with Rufus and Chuck Khan. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about one of the, the, the greatest producers that has ever walked into that musical genre of music and and been able to sustain it for over 40 50 years at, at such a high level yeah. until he passed yeah i was i was amazed that he got in contact at the time and i was amazed at the fact that he was prepared because of the fact of what the original arrangement was going to be and it didn't happen that he turned around and offered himself in terms of being there for me in terms of doing somebody which he produced and what I learned from what he did helped me with my production when I went into production and did people like Paul Johnson yeah. and, you know, other things from there. Well, of course, it was really what I learned from Marie. You, you can't buy experience like that, can you, being sat next to a master? <laughs> Mate, I'm telling you, when you... I remember when we put um, somebody out, Arif had come and we, we had a conversation. He was working with Scritti Politi. Okay. And he turned and he said, Junior, that stuff that we did with the Fairlight, we're going to do it with this pretty politi thing, and I hope you don't mind. And I thought, this man is just such a genuine individual. Right. You know, that's maybe why right? he, he stuck around. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was so humble, but was so willing to give of his art form. So, yeah, I learned a lot from Arif. So, should we have a listen to that then? Uh, the track produced by Arif, taken from your third album, Acquired Taste. This is Somebody. Excellent. One of the tracks on on, on that LP, the um, Acquired Taste that we're talking about, uh, got picked yeah. up for the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. Do you really want yeah. my love? In fact, you wrote that, didn't you? That's right. I, wow. I the history on that was, I'm in America and I'm touring on the second album, The Inside Looking Out album, and I've got 
wicked speakers in the room, right? Nice set. So I'm playing the album as loud as possible. You ask me why? Because downstairs, right below me, was Eddie Murphy. <laughs> I'm playing. I want him to complain. So I'm playing this album loud. I'm singing. I'm dancing, and nobody in the the hotel's complaining, and I, I don't understand. Right. I do this like for two days, and I'm leaving the hotel. I went downstairs and I put the second album underneath his door and left. Came back to England, got a phone call from the record company who at the time had no idea who Eddie Murphy was. And they then turned and said to me that there's this um, this company, Paramount, I think it was, that want me to give them a song for this movie that they're making, right? Beverly Hill Cop with mm -hmm. some guy called Beverly called, <laughs> called Eddie Murphy. I cracked up. Some guy, I thought, you really don't understand. Of course I will. And here's the finished product. This is Do You Really Want My Love? So from the soundtrack to Beverly Hills Cop 2, that's Junior and Do You Really Want My Love. There's a bit of a story behind that, isn't there? Tell me about that. So I did Do You Really Want My Love. I did it. I had a um, four-track in my house right. and um, a Juno machine. And I got um, oh, Glenn Nightingale, who's the guitarist at the time with the Gap Band, but he's English and he came. He, he was here. So I got Glenn to play guitar and I did the rest of it sent the track the following day to the record company and they sent it on and that demo is what you hear in that film it's one of the best things wow. that ever happened to me because it was the demo that went into the film that we did on the four track <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the actual recording where when i actually recorded it yeah. i got stevie wanted to come in and play drums it was the first session as a drummer so on do you really want my love the uh, soundtrack album, that's what it is. It's the uh, Stevie Wonder version with Stevie playing drums. What a great story. But, I mean, you weren't only <laughs> writing for yourself. You are also writing for others, weren't you? I mean, Sheena Easton, Phyllis Hyman, the lovely right. Phyllis Hyman. What a beautiful outlet for her. What a lovely voice. Did you meet oh, her? Did you know her? Yes, we met one. I was in, I think it was Gary I was working with, Griffin, and I was in Philadelphia, and he was saying that he was going to make an album, and I was, I said to him, I was working down at Stigma, so he came down one night and we wrote two songs, I think it was. And I had the, we wrote it in the night. I went back to the hotel in the morning. When I came back, she had vocaled the track. Yeah, If You Want Me. If You Want Me. Beautiful. And I was just amazed that she, and so she was there and we met that way. But I was just amazed. Yeah. She was, she was such a, well, to me, I don't know anybody else always said it about everybody, but to me, she was just lovely, very personable. Yeah. And very funny. Oh, very bless. funny. Bless. Let's give it a play, shall we? Taken from a 1986 album, Living All Alone, this is a track you co wrote for Phyllis called If You Want Me. There's the lovely DC Lee with a track taken from a debut album, Shine, one co-written by yourself, and that's called Hold On. Um, you also struck up a bit of a collaboration with Phil Linnett of Thin Lizzy. Yep. Again, as I said, my whole thing is music, and it's not about the colour of it or whatever else, because it's, it's, if you can feel it, then there's something about it, and, and you know, 
similarly for me, Whiskey and Jaro and stuff like that mm-hmm. were like brilliant, man. Yeah, of course. Just great tracks, really cool. And Phil and I used to hang out down in Camden at the same place. Right. And he wanted to switch up. He wanted to do something completely different. He wanted to, it's a bit like shock. You want to show people that you can do something. Yeah, well, you, you, get, you get put in a box, don't you, if you're not careful. Pigeon yeah, on. and especially him, he was really in a box because he was becoming a true Irish icon. <laughs> yeah. You know, basically, he wanted to mix rock with, with R&B, mm-hmm. but from a British perspective and I love that yeah so I got on board um, I think Lemmy was on board uh, John Sykes was on board from White Snake yeah um, who else Greg Bramble and I think it was this uh, Fonte right you say you production. you say you had Lemmy on board from Motorhead yeah <laughs> that must have been a scream it was madness <laughs> <laughs> goodness me uh, I've been looking. I've been looking at some of the raw demos of uh, managed to come onto YouTube. Lady loves That's to right. dance, and what's the matter, baby? Time. Yeah. Never saw I, release. Well, sorry. Never saw release though. No. Unfortunately, when management went to um, the record company, um, they couldn't see the idea going anywhere. They they didn't get it. Wow. They were saying, you know, they were saying, how can this rock artist go with this R and B artist, and it's not going to work, and they didn't bother. They they put a downer on it, so mm. that was the end of the project. But it was a great period and a great project. Sounded like you had a lot of fun. Sounded like you had a lot of. I say it sounded like you had a lot of fun on the uh, YouTube clips I saw. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We had fun. I mean, like I was the baby, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So everybody else was so very protective, and it was just wonderful. They were just when we all got together, or part of us got together and did bits and pieces towards the project it was just people laughing and having fun and joking and and just showing ideas and bouncing ideas it was brilliant great but i mean that's not the only time that um you've been part of a group of artists coming together from different backgrounds i mean the early 80s was uh, very politically charged and you were you were part of red wedge i remember that very well yep that's correct for myself billy bragg and paul weller yeah jimmy somerville uh, as well jimmy somerville was there as well yeah. Uh, Richard Coles was there. Um, oh, I remember gosh. buying the Castle Collective single. Yeah. Let's give it a play. At that time, I think we were all very much as one in terms of how we saw what was yeah. going on politically within the country, a bit like what's happening now. Well. See, I live in Nottinghamshire. We're on the edge of the coalfields. I remember it well as a for uh, 84. I would have been 16. Right. Yeah. So, you know what I'm talking about. I do, yeah. It was a grim, grim time. Very grim in the way that the South saw the North. Oh, I don't know. In terms of politicians and stuff like that. And, you know, the disproportionate ways in which law was applied yeah. in the North to the South at that time. Yeah. So... Yeah, I had a, I had a beef. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because you the inequality when you're coming from pretty much a socialist mindset. Yeah, was a bit hard to take. So we all came together to make that quite clear that like a lot of us was more about ensuring that we were saying to young people to get yourself involved, but locally mm. change what's going on locally. 
the bigger picture is not all that it seems. And uh, we took that around the whole country. And we, I thought that we made a, a, a proper statement yeah. during that. Right. Well, it's an important yeah. message because far too often people are apathetic when really they are. It's the people that can make a difference if they just, you know, take a bit of social responsibility. So yeah, it was it was something needed saying. Yeah, it was important to us all during that period of time and when we made the record. Because if you can remember, at that same time they were doing Feed the World. Yeah, and um, that whole Feed the World thing, as we all know, became huge as a charity and and what it was doing. But for us, it was, you know, to be quite honest, charity begins at home. Yeah. Right? And if we were going to, I couldn't see why that big push, and no disrespect, but there was a big push that needed to happen here in England. Yeah, yeah, I mean, up here. Yeah, and we just felt that that was what was important to yeah. us at that time. Yeah, I mean, um, but up here in, in uh, Nottinghamshire, we were adopting families because there were people gone 12, 18 months with no income whatsoever. And, exactly. Uh, it was just, it was, it, you, you wouldn't believe it if you didn't see it. It was and That's what was good for us, was that during that period of time, we came up and we'd go to various colleges and schools and, yeah. and unis, and we'd do that before we'd either do the gig or we'd do that like the day off that we had, so that we could speak to the kids and get a better understanding, be there, watch, see what it was. Yeah. And that, that, it, that was what was the driver for all of us, just the inequality that was going on. And we were then trying to be, they were then trying to make us out as being rich pop kids who were, if you like, meddling in, in you know, the affairs of politicians. When in reality, what it was was we were poor rich kids who turned around and realized that, like, hey, you lot out there can have this. It's not us that's stopping you, it's them. Yeah. And we need to show you, you know, you've got to get yourself involved to change it. Absolutely. Nobody else can. Nobody uh, else can. 1987, you met up with Kim Wilde and had uh, a yeah. big success with Another Step Closer to You. Let's give it a play. <laughs> Tell me about that. Kim and I had known one another for a few years before that. And... Um, Always to say hi, to have a hug, and how are you doing, and then we pop off. And then I, I got a phone call from her brother saying that they wanted to do a record, they wanted to do like an R&B kind of record, and they wanted to do it as a duet. And he had an idea, and would I come down and grab a listen? So I went down there um, to Windsor, and it was really funny. Um, I got into the studio, and Kim was late, and uh, Ricky it was, was playing the track, and I'm like, this has got nothing to do with R&B, Ricky. So Ricky's like, yeah, but Julie, we could just change it around a bit and switch it up. And I'm like, no, this is great. Like, this is great. This is another step. I, I, I was like, this is great. All we have to do is do this and do that, you know, because you could see where it, we, if we worked on it, it could change. Yeah. And uh, Kim came in, right, and uh, we went through rehearsing the song. And then we went on and we sang the song and it was like everybody was a bit scared because it wasn't like um, Michael McDonald and, and uh, yeah. Killer Bells on my own, which had come out yeah. pretty much around that time, you know, and that stigma of um, black guy 
white girl, you know, white guy, black, it was all still there. Yeah. So everybody was a bit scared because another step was a bit urgent and a bit hard and, and that's what I wanted. And the pictures that were taken were in black and white as well to give it even more edge, right? And uh, it was great when that record came out and it became big. Yeah. Such a, yeah. I mean, you got you got number six in UK. It was a big hit in your across Europe, and it um, took you, uh, you and Kim, as opening act for Michael Jackson. That's right. Wow. It, was, it, it just went from strength to strength to strength, and then we got asked to do the Michael Jackson tour. That was like one of the well, one of my highlights to do Aintree. We had a hundred and twenty thousand people. It was like a sea. <laughs> Of people, I I never ever seen anything like that or performed anywhere. Yeah, and seen many people. It was amazing for the both of us. Oh, and then okay. we went to South America, and uh, in South America, it went to number one pretty much in every country in South America. So we went there, and that was an amazing experience as mm. well. I mean, they do say you should never meet your heroes, but um, what was he like? What was <laughs> your time like? Fantastic. He was a good laugh, right? Very funny guy. I had asked him a stupid question. Right? Um, the first thing he said to me was, was that he had seen, Mama used to say, yeah. Janet had turned him on to Mama used to say. He said he used some of the moves from Mama used to say, right, in what he does. So I was like, you're having a laugh. <laughs> you know, you can't take that in, do you? Michael Jackson's watching you. Watching your, you, taking you, your dance you, moves. Taking a bit of what you've done and shape. So that was his first thing. And the second Brilliant. thing was, I always remember saying to him um, about the animals that he had. Oh, yeah. But I turned and I said, what was it like to be able to put your chimpanzee in front of people in Japan and have everybody taking pictures and stuff like this? Remember he had a chimpanzee yeah, yeah, yeah. bubble? Yeah. <laughs> so, cracked up laughing and he said wouldn't you love to do something like that Maybe, you know all in the media everybody there to see a chimpanzee how <laughs> crazy is that Junior <laughs> brilliant <laughs> he was doing it all for a laugh and it was just you know sense of humour and stuff I, I like Michael Jackson good lovely lovely so <clears throat> you made your fourth and final album for Polygram Sophisticated Street in 87 mm-hmm and um, it gave you another American Top 20 hit with uh, If You Want Me. Let's give it a play. And Sophisticated Street was your last LP for Polygram uh, before moving to L.A. Tell me about that. Yeah, I went to L.A. and also Minneapolis. Um, LA, I worked with another fantastic producer called Stuart Levine, mm -hmm. who back in the day did, funnily enough, another muso man, he did uh, Curiosity Killed the Cat. Oh, yes. During, right during that period of time. But he was also the producer of the Southern Nights album for the Crusaders. Oh, right. Right. So he was a man in terms of music who had such a vast you know, array of music styles that he'd worked in. So I went and worked with Stuart down in L.A., which was brilliant. Did, did you go there deliberately to get that L.A. sound? Because, I mean, you, you can pr pretty much place music, whether it's Detroit or um, Memphis or Los Angeles, etc. Was that a deliberate... I think I was 
looking. No, I think I think I was more looking for a different sound. I was looking for something that um, would blend for me between what I was doing in England and how they thought about music mm. in America and the sound. So I was looking for something sound wise. When I went to LA and I worked with Stuart, it was very live in terms of um, John Robinson from Rufus played drums on it for us. Right. So it was very live and, and musicians were coming from doing the Thriller album for Michael Jackson <laughs> and coming in and playing on these tracks that Stuart and I were doing. Brilliant. So you, I was looking for a sound, a style in, in the music. And then I went down to Minneapolis and I pretty much found it with um, Monty Moore, who um, I worked with down there from the time. And um, that was the time, you know the time, the time. And Monty and I really formed a great relationship and, and musically, I think we started to nail um, the areas of Junior as an artist that I wanted to go down when we did Living in the Right Way. Um, if ever, songs like that, which were a lot more urgent, I think, and, and if ever, a lot more passionate yeah. in terms of the way that it was delivered and the musical arrangement around it. So I was still finding what was junior, if you get yeah. what I'm saying, in yeah. terms of that, that defined but sound. As part of that transition, you went from Polygram to MCA. Yeah. How, yeah, that was, that was a, that was, I had come to, point whereby with, with Polygram they weren't seeing the picture in the way that mm -hmm. you, was, you know I would like it yeah. to have gone and with MCA there were people there that I knew and who knew what I was trying to do with that with the yeah. music in terms of being a recording artist so you had more artistic and, license at MCA then they were uh, yeah. giving you a bit more flexibility good yeah yeah a lot more you know it was then I decided, right, I'm going to go with Ian Levine and do Then Came You. Right. And, you know, because it was it was a conscious decision. It was like, I need to find sound that benefits me as mm -hmm. my sound, my style. Style was in the voice, but the sound. And I liked Ian. We've known one another for a long time. Yeah. Northern Soft, but he's been yeah, I've met him a few times. over the years. So getting together with him was very easy. It wasn't a problem, and we did that, and we did another song called All Over the World. Oh, yes, a cover of Chuck Jackson's classic That's track, right. brilliant. Brilliant record. Right. So we did that, right? and um, both of those tracks did really, really well. Yeah. You know, and that was another thing. It was like, as I said, finding that you could make you could make music, and it would hit different areas, different people. More people like then came in. There'd be places if I go up north, they'll want the Chuck track, you know, all over the world. Yeah, because it's a stomper for them. They all know it. So it's been. If you can understand where I'm going with all of this, it's been a brilliant ride in terms of being able to start where I started with Mama up to where we are you know, this period of, of being able to do that with Ian, writing a couple of songs myself, um, having a classic from that album with um, Morning Will Come, yeah. which, you know, for me, still is a major song to sing. So 
yeah, that was a good time, that MCA period. Lovely track. There's Morning Will Come from the 1990 LP Stand Strong. Uh, You took a few years out for personal reasons, but came back strong with Oceans in 2011. Some Mm -hmm. nice tunes on there. Miss Contrary, Stand Up and Glow, and uh, also Change Is Gonna Come. That's right. That was the first first time it pretty much um, came out to people, for people to hear that. Yeah. And... uh, that was the beginning, that, if you like, the beginning of the, the now turnaround with Junior again. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's an anthem, isn't it? It's, um, well, a civil rights anthem, uh, of course, Sam Cooke classic, and it's also your new release, your new single. That's correct. It's out on Solar Records at the present moment, and um, doing very nicely from what I can gather. Lovely. It got released mm. on the 6th of August, didn't it? That's correct. So where can people right. buy that? Is it, where, 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 how can people access that? Where can they buy it? Is it uh, available for download on Spotify, Amazon, through Solar Records? All three. <laughs> Everywhere. All three, what I can gather. Everywhere. Okay, let's give it a spin. This is the brand new release from Junior Giscom. Uh, the cover of Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. So um, this is the start of a beautiful relationship with Solar Records then? Yeah. You got some um, more stuff in the pipeline? Well, we've been talking about doing various stuff, in um, writing for artists that they're going to be signing, putting out my own project through them. Yeah. Um, this, the new album, which will be out later, will, will be out next year. Lovely. Is um, called Everything Set, and that's a, a reggae album. Okay. Which I did with people like Stephen Marley, Maxi Priest, oh. Janet Kay, Carol Thompson, um, oh, young rapper called Pinky Famous. It's it's really it was an album that I made. Be, my daughter passed two years ago oh, dear. from MS, and this was something that she always wanted me to do. Right, and I'd, I'd never done it in all the years that I've gone along, and I'd taken her away. We'd be in Jamaica a lot because I spent a lot of time. I do spend a lot of time there. Yeah. And um, this was something that she always wanted me to do, make an album with um, Jamaican artists and make a reggae album. Mm-hmm. Go back home, Dad, go back home. <laughs> so uh, that's what I did with this album, which will be out in February. Lovely. And I hope you like it. Really. Yeah, well, I will definitely make sure you get a copy. I look forward to giving it a push. Any, any plans to get back on the road? He asked leading. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I'm... I'm out on the road in, I think we start in April. Yep. It'll be myself and Gwen Dickey. Oh, from Rose Royce. Going out. Yep. Fantastic. Going out together and that starts on the 14th, I think it is. Let me just check. As I'm right in front of it now looking. Yeah, it starts on the 26th of April in Northampton. Brilliant. So we will be there. We're going to Birmingham. We'll be in Birmingham on the 30th. Lovely. Lovely. Well, again, if you can send me a list of those dates, I shall uh, give those a bit of a push 
as well and see if, if you're uh, coming anywhere near Nottingham or Lincoln I'll I'll come along and see you well, I think we are to be quite honest with you excellent yeah that'd be brilliant <laughs> great stuff right thanks very thank much you for your sure. time thank I've really you. enjoyed talking to you I'm going to wish you all the very best Junior and uh, thank you happy Christmas Merry Christmas to you and yours thank let's you let's hope next year is a fantastic year for us all oh, I hope so too cheers mate bye bye you take care Okay, so I'm going to play you out now with a track taken from your 1992 album Renewal. This is a great tune called Never Gonna Let You Walk Away. <laughs> 